Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome Alexa Haggerty to the show. Alexa is the author of a brand new book, about a month old, or not even a month old, titled Still Life with Bones, published, oh, a couple weeks ago by Crown. Long-time listeners will have noticed that uh, while I do my best to interview people from a wide variety of time periods and um, regional uh, and, and geographic regions, I probably don't interview as many people who write about Latin America uh, as other regions. Uh, and I'm excited that Alexa has experience in Latin America and is going to be able to talk about it with us. But I'm also excited that this book is different. Um, it's a wonderful book, and you should run out and get it as soon as you've finished the interview. Um, it's a combination of, of journalism and anthropology and memoir. It reads beautifully, um, and it introduces uh, people to a field and a kind of experience that few people know much about or have had, and that is uh, the, the uh, responsibility and honor and task of um, of identifying human remains and trying to connect those human remains with living relatives and with people who are investigating the disappearances. So it's a fabulous book. I'm excited to talk about it with Alexa. So Alexa, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks so much for having me. So Alexa, I always start with the same question. Uh, and so I'd like to invite you to say just a little bit about yourself. Um, and how you became interested in anthropology to begin with? Well, that's a good question. I think it was kind of a slow burn for me. I remember um, one of my professors as an undergrad saying that she thought I might enjoy taking an anthropology class and thinking to myself, no, I don't, yeah, that doesn't sound very interesting. <laughs> it sounded kind of dusty. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I was always interested in psychology, in philosophy, uh, in history, um, but anthropology came later, and I think it came through reading anthropologists. Um, I remember that I read um, Charles Briggs uh, and Clara Mantini's Briggs um, book on the cholera epidemic, and that really was kind of shifted my thinking a lot and got me very curious about medical anthropology. And, I, and eventually I did end up um, studying at Berkeley and Charles was my advisor. So yeah, it took a while, but yes, I, I wound up in anthropology. The heart of this book is your time working in Guatemala and Argentina. So so help us, walk us through that. How did you decide you wanted to spend time in, in Guatemala and Argentina and, and and what did you hope to learn and experience there? Yeah, I I was actually in Argentina working on a different um, project, mm-hmm. a project on human trafficking. And I happened to learn about the Argentine forensics 
team and then have a chance um, to to talk with someone on the team. And it just captured it just captured my my interests, my curiosity. It was just something I immediately felt drawn to and like I just needed to know more about, particularly learning about the way that the team um, began their work, which maybe we'll talk about later. But that story, um, I just found it astounding and I needed to know more. So did you, when, when you went there, did you plan on writing the book or is that something that an idea that emerged over time while you were there, or did that not come to you until after? Well, I went um, working on my dissertation research. And so when I first you know, went into the field, I imagined that I would write a an academic book, publish with an academic publisher. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I was thinking. But the seed of um, writing something more public facing was planted very early in my in my research. Um, when I had an exchange with um, um, someone that I got to know in Guatemala and who said to me, what happened here, referring to the genocide in Guatemala, you know, can't be forgotten. And yeah, this planted a seed and it took, you know, maybe a while to grow, but I knew early on, I thought, well, I'll, I'll certainly write an article that's public facing that I think became a, my first goal pretty early on. And you use pseudonyms, which I'm sure is, I'm not an anthropologist, but I suspect it's uh, part of the ethical code in anthropology, but it's also a necessity in these regions. So I wonder what it was like to write about people knowing knowing that you could not identify them um, in any way that might put them in danger. Yes. Well, that was, um, like you say, that's it is standard practice in anthropology to use pseudonyms, although like many things in anthropology, there's, there's discussion about that and, and the pros and cons of, of that. Um, but it's particularly important uh, in a place like Guatemala, where there's been impunity, although there's also been really courageous fights against impunity um, for decades, and in which perpetrators and um, victims continue to live side by side, often in small communities. I mean, people would tell me about walking past the house of a perpetrator every day on the way to pick up, you know, kids from school. Hmm. So, so yes, it becomes not just a matter of uh, sort of anthropological practice, but a matter of, of a vital matter of safety for people. Let's talk about the book. And as I hinted at the beginning, this is something that a lot of our listeners will have heard about, but not know very much about. So maybe we'll start with the practicalities. For those people who aren't familiar with this, um, and I know this is something you can talk about for hours, but um, but we don't have hours. Um, <laughs> what is it? What is a site where bodies are being executed? exhumed, I assume is the pronunciation. What does that site look like? Um, and how do people, what, what kind of procedures are employed to, uh, to exhume safely and responsibly and then to identify bodies? Right. Well, um, the answer to this is, is context dependent mm. because uh, there are mass graves in urban areas. There are mass graves in rural areas. You know, it really depends. Um, but 
let's say in Guatemala and rural Guatemala, which is some of the sites that I, I worked at and sites at which the um, Guatemalan forensic team you know, is working on all, all the time uh, as we speak, that there might be, for example, you might, the community might know where the mass grave is. There may be knowledge held in the community um, about where that is, but that has not necessarily come out um, for fear of reprisal for all the reasons that we just touched on uh, in this context of, of impunity. So it may be a matter of just talking to people and learning where the site is. But then, of course, because time has passed, the site you know, may have changed. Um, so then the forensic team goes in and they look at the contours of the landscape, for example, to see maybe where there might be a depression. They look for changes in the soil to see where the soil may have been disturbed. They could look for clues in, in the flora so that, that maybe, um, yeah, there can be disturbances that they can see in the, in the flora. So that's, that's a, uh, a way that the grave site can be identified. And then they begin by digging um, trenches, you know, looking for the actual site itself. In other cases, um, like in the case of Pozo de Vargas, where I worked in Argentina, um, that site neighbors had seen um, something happening there. They'd seen trucks coming and going during the dictatorship. A neighbor had gone out quite dangerously, really, to go and look at it and seen some bloody clothing near the site. And then there had been a kind of drunken confession by one of the perpetrators that's quasi located the site. So it could happen um, all sorts of ways. At, at Dos Eres, their um, community members had seen bones surfacing mm -hmm. near the massacre site and had reported that to priests who had then reported uh, eventually to a human rights activist. So there could be there could be different ways. There are also some really high tech ways, which you know, aren't usually available because they're very resource intensive. But um, there could be things like ground penetrating radar, satellite imagery. So yeah, there's a number of ways that the sites can be um, identified. You, these are not your words, but I'm reading into you. The word that comes to mind is painstaking. Mm. Painstaking is kind of metaphorical, but in other ways, kind of practical, uh, as I read your account, that it can be painful to carefully and slowly uncover bodies. Um, so what is that experience like? Uh, most of us haven't had that. What, what was it like to slowly uncover remains? Yeah, this was the part that um, I think was one of the first surprises for me was just how incredibly labor-intensive this process is. So there's this sort of you have to do thing after thing after thing. So you have to first identify, just figure out where you should be looking. Then you have to actually find the site. So let's say you're in the general area, then you're digging these trenches to actually find the site. Then as you, you know, now you have the site, maybe you've seen a bone, then it's a matter of um, carefully exposing the remains where they are, cleaning them off without moving them at all so that you can document very precisely with photographs, with drawings, um, because all of this forms part of the evidence uh, of atrocity, of genocide. And then there's removing the remains from the site, transporting them to the lab, 
where they are carefully articulated, pieced back together in order to um, make this forensic profile to understand age, sex, trauma. Then there's DNA testing, but then, you know, DNA testing of, of the bones. So that requires sawing out a piece of bone. Um, but that also requires that you have something to test against. So it also means that teams have gone um, out into communities to collect DNA samples from surviving family members. It's just an incredible process of, of labor. I want to come back later to some of the practical questions of that about how you decide which sites to investigate. Um, so we'll put a pin on that for now. You're talking about re. You talk about you. You used a word, articulate, uh, and you talk in the book about learning to read remains. So, help us understand what that means. What are people looking for in the remains that will help them identify causes of death or when a particular injury was um, experienced or or um, something like that? Right. Well, this is something that I um, had the opportunity to train with other, I mean, I, I'm a social cultural anthropologist, but training with people who were uh, in the process of learning to become forensic anthropologists. So watching what an experienced forensic anthropologist, what experienced forensic practitioner can read in bones is staggering. There's all kinds of ways in which life and death are imprinted in bones. So this could be something like um, looking at bones to determine the age, the approximate age of someone, but it could also be looking for something like, um, let's say a family has given an oral history of someone's disappearance. Part of that might be asking questions about, did this person um, ha ever have an accident in which they broke a bone? Did they, you know, ever chip a tooth? Something like that. So then you could be examining the skeleton, looking for evidence of a of a previous fracture that may have been healed, like from childhood or a chipped tooth. But it could also be learning how to sort out that kind of fracture, which happened during someone's life, to some damage that um, was inflicted on the skeletal remains after death. Um, say, for example, if the remains were moved, um, like shoveled up and moved, sometimes that happens to try to hide the mass graves, and the, the skeletons could be damaged in that process. It also can be about um, clues about what someone did in life. And I talk about a case in which um, the incredible anthropologist, incredible forensic anthropologists and forensic practitioners on the Guatemalan team could be looking at these tiny bones in someone's feet and toes and see in them clues that someone had been a weaver. Because when you weave, you sit in front of the loom in this way in which you kind of sit back on your heels. And if you do that year after year, that um, leaves an, a kind of, it sort of forms your bones. It leaves an impression in the bones of your feet and heels. So yeah, so there's all kinds of clues that can be read in, read in, a, in remains, read in bones. What was learning to do this like? How did, how did someone teach, I guess apprentices may be the right word, um, to do this kind of work? 
Yeah, I think apprentice is the right word. There are a lot of ways that this training happens. Some are, are formal ways, like the kind of field school that I went to, where I you know, enrolled and showed up and um, you know sat in lectures and then you know went in a lab and was presented with case studies. But there's also a lot of um, more apprenticeship-based learning, more informal study, which you know has to do with sort of younger practice younger practitioners coming into the field and accompanying more experienced practitioners and learning from them. But there's all kinds of learning. There's, you know, the studying textbooks, learning anatomy, but then there's also learning the ways in which textbooks may not apply because so many textbook cases, this is beginning to change, but so many textbook cases were developed um, on remains from soldiers, for example, from, um, World War II. So these would be mostly male bodies, many European bodies. So this may not, you know, exactly apply to when we're looking for bodies in a place like Guatemala. So um, I was really impressed in the lab in Guatemala, they would have these charts and you know, all of these things that you'd be referring to, to try to figure out different features of the forensic profile, but they'd be annotated you know, through years of experience, through learning the differences from the textbook cases to these real life cases. And then there's other uh, aspects too. There's learning to use the haptics sense, the sense of touch uh, to um, decode textures that can be meaningful in bones around when an injury happened or around uh, the age of a bone. So there's, yeah, many, many forms of learning. If apprentices require mentors, so maybe let's back up. As you said, part of your goal with this is to get a, this project was to understand how this field developed and who the people were who, sure, they're not the first people who ever tried to, but it, first people who made this a uh, science, is that, I guess that's the right word. Um, so so can you tell us a little bit of the history of, of the attempt to exhume and identify the remains of people killed, killed by government? Yes. Well, this is um, what initially really attracted me to this research, um, was learning that forensic exhumation um, for human rights really emerged in Guatemala. Oh, excuse me, in, let me back up, that forensic exhumation as a field um, dedicated to human rights emerged in Argentina immediately after the dictatorship that really surprised me when I first learned it, because to me, the idea that we would go in after, um, you know, after catastrophic violence, that we would dig up the remains of people to, to for evidence of atrocity, to return to families, that felt so natural. It seemed like it must have always existed. Mm -hmm. So to learn that it um, really came into being in 1984 in Argentina. That surprised me, and, and I was so curious about that. So the background of that story is really fascinating. It's that after the immediately after the return of democracy, there you know, was an immediate attempt to put together a truth commission to, to look at you know, what had happened, to unpack what had happened in Argentina. And in fact, there were some very early attempts at a kind of something like exhumation anyway, where there had been rumors and suspicions 
that um, people who had been kidnapped and killed under the dictatorship, that their bodies had been hidden in municipal cemeteries. So there was sort of an initial attempt where they sort of sent in like backhoes and heavy machinery and they were digging around in, in cemeteries and they did indeed dig up skeletons, but it wasn't really clear whose skeletons they, they belonged to or, or what was going on. And this was broadcast in the evening news and was sometimes referred to as the horror show. So you're like seeing all these these um, skeletons dug up. And families of, of the missing, particularly mothers, began to look outside of Argentina for support in their attempt both to identify the dead, but they were also looking for babies that had been born in these secret prisons and had been kidnapped, had been appropriated by the military. So they were looking, they were, they were looking, like, could science help them? Could science help them identify the dead and to look for these missing children? So they eventually approached um, the AAAS and the AAAS sent a sent a kind of group of scientists to Argentina to to look into the situation there. And it was just going to be a quick trip, a 10-day trip. One of the scientists who came on this visit was Clyde Snow, um, who is a forensic practitioner in the U.S. who is very well known for um, kind of high-profile cases like looking into, into serial killers and, um, yeah, things like that. So he came, he saw what was happening with these sort of proto-exhumations of the cemeteries with this heavy machinery, and he was like, this has to stop because there's so much damage being done to the evidence um, through this. This is not the right way to do it. So the, so the AAAS group visiting called for a stop, and one of the, the judges in Argentina kind of threw down a challenge to Clyde Snow and said, okay, well, you say that by doing one careful exhumation, you would learn more than by doing this, you know, pulling up all these bodies. Can you, like, we, we have a suspicion about a grave. Can you actually carry out, carry out an exhumation while you're here? Mm -hmm. So Clyde Snow began to look around for professional um, professional archaeologists, um, people who could help him with this because he couldn't do it on his own. And he couldn't find anyone. He couldn't find anyone. Partly this is because this is immediately after the dictatorship. There, and Argentina had up to that point a very tumultuous political history. So there was absolutely no guarantee that another dictatorship wasn't right around the corner or that maybe um, some form of this dictatorship wouldn't come back. We're, we're just months out of the dictatorship at this point, like six months out of the dictatorship. So people were afraid. They like they didn't want to go looking for these bodies that would put a target on your back um, if the if a, the dictatorship or a an allied political, some people who were sympathetic with the dictatorship came into power. And it was also because people um, were, were implicated. Yeah, people, many professionals, people at morgues had helped 
the um, dictatorship hide bodies. So what ended up happening was that Clyde Snow's kind of informal translator, a young medical student, just went around and asked his friends, like, oh, could you come and help? Come and help this guy. Like, come and help this guy do this. So a group of um, students, uh, medical students, but mostly anthropology students, archaeology students and cultural anthropology students came and started to help Clyde Snow do this. And these are the students who became um, the Argentine forensic team. That's an amazing story. Um, and and there's hours and hours again that we can talk about this. I'm curious how how do they be- move from becoming, I guess, willing volunteers? Maybe the right way to put it to to experienced professionals. Is 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 that Clyde Snow tutoring everybody? Is that how does that work? Well, Clyde Snow, I think, was instrumental in some of the initial training, but it's the, this group of students uh, really took it on themselves to um, both learn the technical knowledge that Clyde Snow was sharing, but also what Clyde, the piece that Clyde Snow didn't have was the political piece. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, things that Luis von der Bridere, who's one of the founders of the Argentine team, said to me that has always stayed with me, is that he said, you know, Clyde had all of the science, but like the, the the students had the politics. For them, this was a political act. This was an act um, to speak out against any kind of impunity, against forgetting to, to prove um, the atrocities that had taken place in Argentina. So as, this, as, as I read this, as these... Um, as this team became more experienced, as they um, as this practice extended outside of Argentina to, among other, Guatemala, there developed uh, a willingness to f- um, to allow family members to become somehow engaged in the process. You talk about this as family centered forensic practice. What, what is this and what does it mean to practice forensic science in a family-centered way? Right. Well, I would say that it's much more profound than teams allowing families mm, to be present. You. It's um, that from the beginning, it's the families who were pushing, the families were pushing the human rights agenda. They were pushing to know the fate of their loved ones, and they were looking for ways that science could help them. So it's really the families that are spearheading the effort, and the teams become enrolled in this effort and co-create this effort with the families. And it also has to be said, there's not necessarily an absolute divide between teams and families. There are uh, many team members who lost people during the dictatorships uh, in in Guatemala um, and in Argentina. These are not, this is not a clear, necessarily a clear divide. But yeah, I think that, that what a family-centered practice means is that the family is really, families and communities are involved really in every step along the way. 
And that, I think, is um, one of the great contributions of Latin American forensic science. Not only is it that the field was initiated in Latin America, but it's also that it was initiated with a very particular um, a particular structure in which the families and communities are centered and in which there is, is always a political act, an act against impunity at the heart of, of what they're doing. One thing that comes out of this, um, both the involvement of families, but also the, the fact that many of the team members are, were alive during the oppression and experienced oppression um, is this fact that some of them have, or some people around you as you are exhuming these bodies, have stories to tell. You talk about these as testimonials. So what is a testimonial and, and what was it like to listen to one? Mm, yeah. Well, the stories of families are integral to the process. So they're integral in the sense that you need the oral histories, for example, to identify where the graves are. You need them to know these important details of missing people, like we discussed, like, you know, like if someone had broken a bone, that could be a very important clue. And there's also testimonials. So the testimonial, as I experience it, is not the oral history. It's not the piece that's directly related to um, the search for the missing people, but it accompanies it very closely. And a testimonial is a form um, that came out of um, Holocaust survivors, but really, I think, flourished and has bloomed in Latin America in a particular and powerful way. So a testimonial is a public storytelling of, of someone's experience of oppression. And it has, you know, I think many elements. It has an element that's sort of therapeutic and sort of a kind of talk therapy. It's a, it's around healing and trauma, but it has also a very political element that's um, giving testimony, even in um, circumstances in which the judicial process may not be functioning, in which you may not be able to seek justice along um, more formal routes. And it's also, and this I think is part of what was a very profound lesson for me, is that it's it's very different than an interview. It's not as if, it's not that I went into the field, I was trained to interview people and I went in, you know, with my, the notes I'd taken in my methods class. But this is not an interview. This is something very different. And it's it's different because it's on the, the terms of the speaker and it also ethically implicates the listener, ethically implicates, you know, I felt ethically implicated listening to these testimonials because it's also kind of a call to a call to action. The book is, is history, as I said, but it's also reflection. And so I'd like to turn to some of those kind of elements of your book. And and I guess I'll start by by asking you about closure, right? Because in some sense we think of of this process as, as something designed to offer families, I don't know, an escape, an end, uh, a pause, whatever the word is, you, you seem uncomfortable with the notion of closure. Is that right? And, and if so, how so? Right. Well, closure is a word that turns up um, a lot around forensic exhumation. Sometimes, 
by the teams themselves, but more often I would say from funding agencies that will talk mm-hmm. about that this is a you know that that this work brings closure to to families. So there are several clues, I think, to me that closure might not be the right word, might not describe what was going on. In part, I was drawing on my own experiences of grief. Um, and, and in my experiences of grief, closure, I didn't, never felt like closure described the even many years after loss has, has not described my experience. So that was one piece of the clue for me. But also, um, I remembered that I was interviewing um, a son of a disappeared father. And he had said to me uh, about the experience of re- get it, having a piece of his um, his father's, well, having his father's remains returned return to him. And so he was telling me, when the remains were returned to me, I had, it was, you know, it was really good because it brought me closure. It closed the story. It, it ends the grief. And then he paused and he said, well, no, actually it, it opens things up. And that I thought, oh, that's interesting because this, both seem to be true. Both seem to be true for him. And I heard similar, I heard that theme in, 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 discussion with many people that there was something that there was something that felt like closure and there was something that felt like like opening so when i turned to to look more at the psychology of grief and um, some of the literature there i discovered that in fact yeah psychologists have also sort of moved beyond closure as a way of thinking about grief that um, there's many other ways to think to think about grief in terms of meaning making in terms of continue, continued bonds with the dead, many other, other ways to think about um, grief. Although at the same time, I do think that the idea of closure, the idea of a kind of linear march toward, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll just have a sip of water, that even as in the psychological literature, sort of moving beyond closure, that closure, this idea of a linear march toward getting over things, holds a lot of sway. It's like, it's quite a stubborn notion that I think um, we still find, um, you know, in everything from sympathy cards to advice that, that friends might give us, things like that. But I don't think that, you know, after having done this research and having having had many conversations with families um, and loved ones of, the, of people who um, were killed, and also with forensic teams, I think that generally something more complex than closure is going on. And this extends to the kind of political realm of grief. So one of the points that um, the mothers of the disappeared have made, so one of the points that um, the mothers of the disappeared have made, um, there's a beautiful quote from one of the founders of the Madres in Argentina, where she talks about that um, there's a sense that people want to forget about what happened. They want to close the wound, but she and the other mothers that we want the wound to be open. And so I think that this is, is interesting to see in both in the personal experience of grief, but also in the political experience of grief, that there can, um, be a generative 
opening, a genuine, a generative continuation where we're not aiming for closure, we're aiming for something more like tr transformation. Europe, as um, I've said previously on this podcast, and and years ago I took them shortly after the uh, memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe was um, first opened. I guess is the right word, and and watched um, people around that memorial make sure that kids did not play on it and in it and around it, and watched that kind of relax over time until it became simply a uh, some just another thing in in the landscape as opposed to an open wound and that's been very interesting um we think of exhumations and funerals as two separate things at least i always did uh, but you write, I've come to see exhumations as sacred practices of caring for the dead. In other words, exhumations don't just allow funeral rituals. They are funeral rituals. What, what do you mean? Yeah, well, this is um, a conclusion that I came to slowly through, through my research. I went in seeing the connection between exhumation and funeral ritual in a way that I think most of us do, which is that exhumation is uh, really important because it recovers a body. And by recovering the body, you allow for funeral ritual, you allow that the family to give um, their loved one a proper burial or other, um, other farewell. But as I did my research, one of the first things that I realized, which is a rather obvious thing, is that most bodies will never be recovered mm -hmm. because the cruel logic of disappearance is that um, bodies are burned and hidden and you know dropped from airplanes into the ocean and you know, all of these terrible things. So no matter how hard forensic teams, you know, no matter how dedicated they are, and they are incredibly dedicated, not all bodies will be found. So it began to seem to me that the sort of metric that would generally get used to say whether or not a forensic team had been successful, which would be how many bodies were discovered at a site and how many identifications were made, didn't actually capture the full meaning or the full significance of the exhumation. Because when you are talking to families, you hear how powerful and how meaningful it is that the teams are there looking, looking for their person who, and even when that person is not found, the fact that their name is being spoken, the fact that someone is hearing this oral history of their disappearance, the fact that it's all being kind of entered into evidence um, is very powerful. So I just began to slowly shift the way that I thought about exhumations um, I mean, obviously, exhumations are really important for the material evidence of atrocity that they produce and the ways in which that can enter judicial processes. And obviously, they're also very important for those families who do recover remains and are able to have funerals. But they are also really important for families and communities, even when no one 
even when no one is found. And that, I would say, is the ritual um, power of exhumation. In your writing, you are, uh, and, and the phrase that I'm using here is unflinchingly honest, um, about the way this experience transformed you. And, and I wrote in my notes, traumatized, perhaps even traumatized you. I don't know if those are the words you use, but can you say a little bit about how this experience challenged you and, and how you responded? Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, I think probably traumatized and transformed are both accurate descriptions. Um, this research was very difficult for me. I struggled often to do this research. I um, I found it very difficult. And that the fact that I found it so difficult really allowed me, I think, to be a certain kind of, to bear witness in a certain way to the work that these forensic teams do, because it's like work that I couldn't do, just in the way that I could never be a surgeon or like, I just don't have that ability. I, I couldn't I couldn't do the work that they do, but it it kind of shows me all the more how incredible the work they do is and the fact that they're able to to do it year after year to integrate the difficulty to, to go on um, in this labor, this incredible labor for justice. But yeah, it, it, it impacted me. It was very difficult for me. And um, I knew that I was not going I would say I was so impressed with what the teams do. And I was just so, I just found it so meaningful. There was part of me that like, oh, I wish that I could do this. Like this, what a meaningful form of anthropology this is. This is, And in fact, one of the people at my first field school, one of the leaders used to joke with me, stay with us and learn to be a real anthropologist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was... Um, there was something very appealing in that, but I quickly realized that I, yeah, I didn't, I did not have what it would take to do that. So, um, yeah, I was not able to, to work in the day and cry at night, which is what Clyde Snow advised, um, the teams that he mentored in Argentina and Guatemala to do. Um, I, I found the work very distressing. So I'm intrigued because you you just told a story about someone stressing the value of anthropology, and yet you seem, at least in parts of your reflections, to question anthropology, at least as a academic discipline. Um, in the sense, I'll, I'll just read your words, right? But you're um, talking about um, this idea that the world must not forget. And you said, you write, but sharing with me is not sharing with the world. Half a dozen people came to the last conference talk I gave. And even big name anthropologists aren't widely read outside the field. Sadly, this is true of history as well. Just a parenthetical uh, uh, comment. Um, these stories will help my research, but how will it benefit these women? It seems terribly wrong. And thoughts like these are slowly eating away at my relationship with anthropology. Um, so I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that, that experience and, and then tell me if that's still your, I don't know, relationship with anthropology, your perception of anthropology. Where do you stand with that now? Yes, well, um, that passage you read was me reflecting on um, these women who had gathered to to 
to share their testimonials with me, recounting stories of such um, such terror, such trauma, such loss, very much with the expectation that I would amplify the stories. Um, and yet I felt in particularly in those early days in Guatemala, I felt that I, you know, that they, that I, I was not, that's not what was going to happen with, <laughs> with the stories because I was going to, in the best case scenario, write them in my dissertation. Um, and there's a joke, a pre-digital joke about dissertations that someone told me when I started my program that if you put a $20 bill in the sort of hard copy of your dissertation that lives in the library and you go back 10 years later, it will, you know, it'll still be there. So, so I just had this real sense of um, that, that they were sharing with me these incredibly painful stories, important stories with an expectation that I share them, but that, that, that I wasn't going to be able to do that through a dissertation or probably even through an academic article or a presentation at you know, our big anthropology conference. So this just really, really troubled me. And um, I'm certainly not the first anthropologist or the last anthropologist to struggle with the field, which is very deeply rooted in colonialism, colonialism and, and indeed in genocide, uh, in, in the genocide of indigenous peoples, in the forms of, you know, quote unquote, science that created racial categories and hierarchies that have been used to justify so many forms of catastrophic violence you know, from mass atrocity to structural violence. So we know that anthropology has played this role. There has also been tremendous soul searching in the discipline, and there have been attempts at repair, and I think there have been arguably some quite meaningful attempts. But I don't think that the discipline has entangled itself from, you know, this very problematic history or this ongoing violence. I think that it's just very deeply rooted in the field. Um, and part of this is a myth of a lone ethnographer traveling off to some faraway place um, to sort of report back. And yeah, this myth has been questioned, but has it been dismantled? I don't, I don't think that it has. And I'll give you just a small example that um, from my inbox this week, which is that at our big conference, the AAAs, there's been a problem for many years where you cannot, um, if you're trying to register your panel, there can only be one person that can be put in the, the box as organizer and only one person can be put in the box as the, the, the author of a paper. So even in sort of our, our digital our digital infrastructure, we are holding on to this idea of, of sort of this heroic lone author. And certainly we see that in the way that um, the gold standard of being a single authored article or single authored book. So I'd say that there's a kind of opening and curiosity about more collaborative um or co-designed forms of research, but it's still very deeply written into into the field. These these foundational myths. So I think we have a have a long a long way to go, and um, 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I continue to to grapple and struggle with the field while also really feeling there's something so valuable um, about close to the ground research, about really looking at life's incredible complexity and messiness on the ground. So I do value that about anthropology. Well, you, of course, have tried to reach more people and done so if i say may say very successfully it's a it's a wonderfully written book it's a book designed as you say for an audience of non-specialists and, and so we have graduate students and uh, new professionals who read this or listen to this podcast sorry so maybe maybe a couple questions that that where you can offer advice to those people about how to write well so one of them is i gotta i, I have to say I don't think I could do this. There's clearly a way you have managed to discipline yourself to take notes in a way that will allow you to write in a style that seems organic and yet is clearly carefully structured and and remembered. So how do you keep the kind of notes that allow you to make the story come alive? What did you do that at night? Did you do that on the weekend? What does it look like? What tips can you give to graduate students? Well, in terms of field notes, this is always a really vexed topic mm. <laughs> because it's kind of an impossible project. And <laughs> and in the book, I you know I talk about like coming back from the field and then trying to write up my field notes and um and I compare it to the Borges story in which the, the map of the empire becomes the size of the empire. Like it's kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. And then somehow it always ends up that something that was very, turns out to be later, you realize the most important part of something that you participated in or, or observed was the piece that you didn't put in your notes or you you only mentioned you know more briefly and then you were like oh why didn't I record that more carefully so I don't know I mean there's no there's no neat and tidy answer to this but some of these things are just burned into your memory too um, but in terms of writing I would first sort of maybe push back and say that uh, I think that academic disciplines would first need to want and reward and align incentives with um, accessible writing. Is that something that we really want or is that something we just kind of say that we want? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I do feel that sometimes being told that you're an accessible writer can be a kind of back and how do we say that backhanded compliment. Um, and I have, I have, sometimes had the experience where I felt that my scholarship was um, or my authority was maybe questioned or in some way um, because I wrote, I chose to write in a clear, accessible fashion. I hope that this is changing because I truly believe that um, those of us who are fortunate enough to have our job be researching, thinking, teaching. This is really a privilege and that the riches in our disciplines must be shared widely. 
and that they're too important to keep um to keep closed up in the ivory tower. I really believe that. That doesn't mean there's not room for, you know, for us also to have dense conversations or write texts that are more dense in certain circumstances, but I would like to believe that there is also room to really be publicly engaged and that that is a serious part of, of our work. And I'd say that the tip for writing is, uh, I think, always the same and kind of unsatisfactory to hear, but it's reading. It's You just have to read, read beautiful prose or poetry and get the rhythm of that in, in your mind. I often will, if I'm feeling stuck or even just to start my day writing, will just read something that I admire that I think is beautifully done just to get the, get the rhythm in, in my mind. No, I think that's good advice. It's advice I give my students, although with the uh, decreasing attention span of our students, it's sometimes difficult to persuade them that reading can be useful that way, but hope springs eternal. Uh, I want to read you a, a couple quotes uh, as, as a way to kind of move toward the conclusion of the interview. Uh, one is from a New York Times review of your book, which is almost always very favorable. Um, and it ends with um, a quote from you that is, the dead whispered to me that it didn't have to be this way. The massacres, secret prisons, and hidden graves, all the terror and loss, another world is possible. And she ends the quote there and, and the reviewer and, and, and talks about the kind of optimism implicit in that. But in your book, just before that passage, um, you write this one, quote, <clears throat> excuse me, what is to be learned from the catastrophe of history? Can inheritance of violence be transformed? Where are the wellsprings of courage found? How do we go on in the face of incalculable loss? These are the questions the dead ask of us. They cannot be answered or ignored. We can only live into these questions or in, into the questions. So I wonder now, now that you've, I know the book was just published, but we also know that it takes a year or so to kind of move through the publication um, process. What do you think about the juxtaposition of those those two quotes and those two sentiments and what does it mean to you to live into these questions well i mean this i think is a life's work so i certainly don't have it all figured mm -hmm. out i try and but... ask easy questions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a good an easy question um i think that something that i've thought a lot about or something that I learned from my research, something that has impressed me um, is the ways in which families and communities have transformed grief and loss into powerful commitments to justice. And something else that has really struck me is the ways in which the team's work is so slow. You know, it's so slow, so painstaking, as you said, and yet they carry on, you know, they carry on week after week, year after year, decade after decade. Um, and so I think that that has maybe helped me reflect on maybe the pace and scope of my own contributions, that both that what I will do will be modest, but that if I keep doing it, or and I work with others, if we keep doing it together, that uh, it is meaningful, it can be a meaningful contribution. 
I, I also have been thinking a lot about um, the kind of social context that leads up to genocide, that leads up to this kinds of this kind of atrocity. And I think about something that Timothy Snyder has called um, anticipatory obedience. That he he writes that most of the power of authoritarianism is freely given. That we think ahead about what an oppressive regime might want, and then we offer it we offer it up. And so I think that one thing I have thought about is um, kind of building as best I can a muscle of courage, even if it's just small courage, even if it's just trying to to speak up, um, or if it's something like, um, I mean, to be really frank, to publish a, as an academic, to publish a book uh, not with an academic press has felt like a risk, um, but I I wanted to do it because I felt that the stories that had been entrusted with me needed to be shared with as many people as possible, and that a trade press was could do that better. Um, so I think that those are maybe the things I I maybe those are the ways in which I'm living into those questions um, as best I can <laughs> imperfectly. Um. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, uh, and so maybe we'll just cycle to the last couple of questions. And here I will just say, um, well, actually, I'll let you say that. So I'll, the first question I always ask is, um, do you have a book suggestion or, or a movie or a documentary, something that um, that the audience can go to that was meaningful to you, whether that's an academic text or a memoir or something that that you would suggest that we would benefit from reading or watching or listening to oh yeah lots um i if you are interested in in the guatemalan genocide or in, in the in in just in the violence in and the aftermath in guatemala Diane Nelson's trilogy on Guatemala, A Finger in the Wound, Reckoning, and Who Counts are such powerful, creative books. They're also wonderful books for anyone who's interested in writing. They're so beautifully written. So those uh, I would recommend wholeheartedly. I also um, always like, I, I like to read fiction uh, too. That's sort of, you know, when I'm thinking about my ethnographic research, I really find uh, fiction to be a great resource. So I really loved Rodrigo Ray Rosa's uh, Human Matter, which is about the police archive. Well, it's not just about, it's about many things, <laughs> but it's in part grounded in the police archive um, in Guatemala City. Uh, another novel that I found very powerful is by Patricio Prawn, an Argentine writer that's called My Father's Ghost is Climbing in the Rain. And this looks at the kind of intergenerational um, trauma uh, of, of the disappearances in, in Argentina. I also love poetry. So Javier Zamora's um, Unaccompanied has been very meaningful to me and Natalie Diaz's uh, work. So those are just some recommendations, but yeah. Well, I now have um, a number of good excuses to postpone grading. Well, I read <laughs> things that are important to my profession and to my life. So thank you very much. Um, the last question, and here I'll say, um, uh, you've continued to write uh, for a popular audience, and I would 
point the listeners to articles you've written, and particularly a really interesting one about uh, the Ukraine. Um, but where can people follow you, and and what are you up to next? Yeah, well, I've just made a website. It's alexahaggerty.com, so you could find me there, um, or on Twitter, also under Alexa Haggerty, and a little bit on Instagram. So those are some places that you could follow me, um, and I could follow you back. <laughs> so what I work on now is I have shifted, I've really shifted, when I realized that I was not I kind of, I couldn't work on um, forensic exhumation forever because it um, was so profoundly difficult, even though I feel very privileged to have done this research. I've really turned my attention to thinking about the human rights implications of emerging technologies, um, particularly technologies of mass surveillance, like facial recognition technology, because I do see these as some of the uh, raising some of the most profound questions about human rights, um, and unfortunately, probably about genocide um, that we face now. So that's really what I am. That's where I, my attention has has turned now is to looking at these emerging technologies. So I'm also, you know, investigating other forms of writing, like fiction and poetry. So we'll see where that takes me. Well, wherever it takes you, I hope that you'll uh, come back and talk with us again. We have been talking with Alexa Haggerty about her new book, Still Life with Bones, Genocide Forensic and What Re- <clears throat> Excuse me, Genocide Forensics and What Remains. It's a terrific book. Uh, I encourage you to go out and get it. But in the meantime, Alexa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I hope we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much.